Hi and welcome to Fenergo FinTalks, I'm your host Dharma Sigidu, and today I'm joined by two brilliant minds in the AML space, Friso Papping and Aoife Doyle. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves and uh, explain why you're here? Thank you, Danim. Um, I am the VP of Product Marketing at Finergo. I have over 15 years experience in the KYC AML space across financial services and um, our local regulator here in Ireland and have been with Finergo for six years. Very good. Thanks, uh, Danum, for uh, for having us and hosting today. And great, Eva, to um, to uh, be looking back at uh, 2022 together and, and making a few predictions for 2023. Uh, my name is Friso, uh, VP of Growth at uh, at Fenergo. I have a background in uh, finance. Um, actually, worked for a very large bank. Um, first-hand experience with uh, some of the the major compliance challenges there, and I've now been in in the regtech space for over four years. So it's it's, it's great uh, great to be here today, and I look forward to uh, to our conversations. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about a little bit about the future, right? So we're going to be talking about uh, AML predictions across 2023, and also just a quick a quick touch on what 2022 brought us in a very exciting year in the in the AML compliance space. Um, I think just to, just to kick things off, let's let's take a look at what undoubtedly shaped most of 2022, which is the uh, the war in Ukraine uh, between Ukraine and Russia and just uh, the incredible sanctions um, that we've seen imp- imposed since then. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to kick this off, Danu, but I think... 2022 has certainly been a challenging year for everyone with um, with cl- global economic activity experiencing a severe slowdown. Um, you know, the, the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine um, and, and the following global sanctions have brought the recovery from the pandemic to a slowdown. Um, commodity prices have gone up. Uh, Europe is in an, in an energy crisis. Um, central banks have been raising interest rates to combat inflation. Um, which, of course, has a major effect on, on the global financial markets. We've seen that in, in 2022. And I think we can definitely expect this to continue in 2023. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch upon this also uh, later on when we talk a bit more about the predictions for 2023. But yeah, um, a, a very interesting year in, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the, the war between uh, Ukraine and Russia really was the first time we ever saw sanctions used as a as an economic weapon to kind of coerce behavior in such a in such an obvious way um it's, it's really interesting uh do you think that this is something that uh we're going to see more of uh, over the next over over the next coming years and do you think that's really had a significant impact on on the economy in, in 2022 I think we'll undoubtedly continue to see sanctions being used as a tool to prevent um, or to react to um, actions such as the move from Russia to invade Ukraine. However, I think if we all took a pause and said, what actually was the outcome that that had? So we all had a very reactionary shift across financial institutions to push the sanctions in place. Um, It obviously was a huge test of their technology capacity as well in order to react to it as soon as they could. But that funding, that money, that position that the oligarchs had, it hasn't gone away. And it does beg the question of what is the post-sanction activity? What happens now? Has that money, has that movement of assets, has the movement of their goods just gone into a market that we can no longer see now that it's not in the eyes of the um, financial institutions? So 
I think it has both a plus and a minus in that it definitely brought to the fore that sanctions can and should be used. But I think it now begs the question, what do you do after the sanction has been um, put in place? That's, that's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, obviously, a lot of a lot of the companies that are dealing with these are regtechs and fintechs um, who don't necessarily have the, the mature um, compliance uh, solutions in place to be able to handle that. So how do you think they're managing to, to react to this sort of activity? It certainly had has a big impact on fintechs purely. One, your reason being that they don't have quite simply the the maybe the knowledge or the huge teams that a, a large scale bank would have in order to react to these pieces. So one impact that it will have, and I think the knock-on effect of the Ukraine-Russia conflict has been that as the economies have all been rattled globally, it has had an impact of having less funding for fintechs to actually be able to continue to develop, leaving that they are a lot more vulnerable to financial crime. So one would maybe ask the question that in 2023, would you see the uh, assets, the money that moves through the traditional uh, financial uh, system moving into the reg tech space where they know that they may be a little bit more vulnerable than, say, a traditional bank to be as reactionary. So yeah, all that money's got to be somewhere. But as we saw at the end of 2022, we saw, uh, like like Friso said, everything, the cost of everything is going up, uh, cost of living crisis here in the UK. What do we think is going to be happening going forwards now that we're entering this bear market? Some would say that we're, you know, already in a recession. So I think overall, it's well known that um, financial crime flourishes during a downturn. Um, when the world is dealing with increased financial pressure, um, there's greater incentives to engage in misconduct. And I think overall, there's an ever-increasing need for financial institutions to protect their customers. And with this global recession, I think this will only increase more. And it's not only for financial crime, right? Um, um, first of all, I think we see an increase in, in fraud and scams. They're on the rise. Um, criminals are taking the advantage of the cost of living crisis um, across the world. Financial institutions also need to protect their customers in other ways. Uh, let's think around the, the recent trends around buy now, pay later products. Um, over the past years, we've seen a massive increase in, in offerings. Um, and it's really up to the financial institutions to protect their borrowers. Um, given the cost of living crisis, we should expect a higher demand for credit, um, even despite the higher interest rates. So it's very important for financial institutions to stay on top of that and really protect their customers from um, having too much exposure to, 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 to these type of, of, of borrowings. So Frisa, that's a really interesting point you raise there about uh, credit and access to credit in, in a declining economy. Um, do you think that this is, this is a space where companies need to be a bit more vigilant about potential financial crime? And how can they how can they do that, do you think? Yes, I think very much so. And if we consider that a lot of the players in the buy now, pay later market are in that fintech space and maybe have not got as mature a KYC or customer due diligence process in place, they are quite vulnerable to fraudsters then leveraging their products to gain credit in a nefarious way and avail of the credits that they are offering. Um, and, you know, maybe they are buying quite regular consumer goods with no intent to pay later. So I think when you look at a credit product, which whomever offers it, it's always a risky um, piece to offer. But if you look at the 
certain institutions that are offering it, that fintech space that we saw emerging across the 2020s really will show us that the buy now, pay later place is very vulnerable to KYC fraud. That's really interesting. I think it just goes to show that you can never know your customer well enough, right? It's always worth getting a little bit more information, a little bit more insights so that you can really understand what their motivations are and what they're looking to achieve. Yes, definitely. And I think as well, a lot of people in that area, it's individuals, whereby previously a lot of KYC regimes are focused very much on the larger corporates and unraveling that corporate hierarchy to determine where there may be some bad actors. But if you look at the individual space where you're availing of a very risky credit product, are you doing enough due diligence on that individual to really test their source of wealth, their source of funds, their capacity to repay? Are you checking that the credit that you extend is actually going to an account where that individual has said that they're based? Um, really, those sort of checks, you need to bring it into the market of services that are targeted at individuals more so than the larger corporates where you might typically see very strong KYC AML regimes in place. And maybe if I can jump into that, Dan. So, and, and uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point, Ifa. Uh, and I think financial institutions should also see this 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 global slowdown as an opportunity, right? It gives businesses the opportunity to reevaluate their compliance frameworks, ensure that these compliance frameworks are fit for the turbulent times ahead, because anticipating and and prevention will really help them to weather the storm. Um, and, and there's a number of ways that, that financial institutions can proactively enhance their compliance functions. So they should really treat this also as an op opportunity to reevaluate what they're doing um, and really uh, making them even even more future-proof. So that's, that's, that's a really interesting point, um, especially around how, how this could be an opportunity for, for businesses. Is there anything else about 2022 and how uh, the AML space has been impacted by wider movements? Yeah, definitely. So with that increase in, in interest rates following the inflation, um, we've seen uh, a significant value contraction in 2022 in the global technology space, um, which has not spared financial institutions valuations. Um, in some cases, we see valuations have been reduced by up to 80 to 90%. Um, following those significantly higher interest rates. So this deterioration has been across all subsectors, payments, infrastructure, personal finance, rec tech, cross-border payments. And together with lower GDP forecasts, um, investors have compelled fintechs um, to conserve cash, be more conservative on growth and focus on profitability. And, and if you look at compliance spending uh, at financial institutions in general, this often takes up a large part in, 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 their, in their cost. So it's becoming more and more important for financial institutions to have a lean and efficient uh, compliance setup. Um, so I think that, that trend of 2022 will also uh, play up in, in, in 2023. One of the biggest events of 2022 was the, um, the war in Ukraine. And it stands to reason that's going to continue to affect most of 2023 as, as so far we're not seeing any end hostilities. How do you think um, this is going to affect things? Do you think we're going to see more sanctions? Are we going to see more targeted sanctions, more sectoral sanctions? How is that going to A, impact the world economy and, and B, more importantly, how is that going to impact how um, financial institutions and other businesses react to the increased requirements uh, from regulators? I think obviously um, will still have a major impact in 2023. Um, as already 
said before, I think um, the, the Russian invasion has has brought the recovery from the pandemic to a slowdown. Uh, commodity prices have gone up. We have the energy crisis in Europe. Um, central banks have been raising interest rates, um, and this will continue to have a knock-on effect uh, for both consumers and companies, really decreasing their spend, profits, and investments. And overall, this just weakens uh, the economic output, um, which will lead to more difficult conditions for banks, insurance, funds managers, but overall, the, the global economy. So this, this will have a, a continued knock-on effect for consumers and companies, uh, dampening their spend, uh, profits, and investments. And then next to that, we'll also will likely see uh, still an impact in um, in the fintech markets, right? Of which a lot of fintechs are heavily dependent on on external funding. Um, with that increased interest rates, uh, we see a capital market crunch, and and this will likely continue for 2023. Um, so very curious to see how that plays out in the market, uh, but but definitely we'll we'll see this uh, this effect also in in 2023. And I think, we'll, as Friso said, we'll definitely continue to see the macroeconomic implications of Ukraine and Russia globally. But if we look at it on a more micro level and look to the question around, will there be continuing sanctions? I think undoubtedly um, it is almost part and parcel of this conflict that uh, both sides retaliate with economic sanctions, with sanctions on individuals. So I don't think we'll see an end to that. And certainly I think, again, at that macro level, the vigilance of SVIs in really delving into who are they doing business with? Have they assessed their exposure across Ukraine and Russia in the correct way? Have they really uncovered all of the oligarchs, all of the very, very wealthy individuals that exist across Russia, have they figured out, as we've discussed a little earlier, have they figured out where this money has gone? Where has this sanctioned money gone? What did happen with the assets as they were disposed? So I think we'll see a lot of continuation across 2023 that the conflict will continue to impact our day-to-day lives from a macroeconomic position and also the day-to-day of KYC and AML, checks, procedures, regulations at a much, much more micro position for individual financial institutions. Do we think there's going to be like this continued uh, tumultuous political climate inside of Russia? We have all this money that is being rooted into the pockets of oligarchs and now it seems to be suddenly disappearing. Yes, of course. And I think it begs the question that maybe this money hasn't um, disappeared. It has been dispersed across family members, dispersed across friends. And how can you assess to say maybe the, the patriarch of a family has died or disappeared in suspicious circumstances? So was that wealth dispersed across the family members and RFIs really looking across the full remit of that person's network to say, did the money hop from A to B, as it were. So I think that's that's a great point to end on uh, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine in 2023. But let's let's move on just a little bit to what's happening around the regtech market from this. Uh, how do we see this being affected by this activity in 2023? So I think what is interesting about this economic slowdown is that um, we don't actually see uh, any changes in in the job markets, right? It's still a very tight market. Um, There's not enough compliance people out there. Um, And the job of a compliance manager is becoming increasingly uh, complex. The evolution of compliance managers from focusing solely on regulations um, is changing. Uh, Current compliance managers need to be able to have a good tech understanding 
and, and that just makes this market even more complex. So overall, looking at the macro trends, I expect that there will be an increasing need for regtech solutions. Um, authorities are becoming uh, more aggressive in enforcement, handing out more fines. And um, actually, the, the, the whole war situation will only accelerate the need for more advanced uh, regtech solutions. I think what is mainly interesting about this economic slowdown is that we don't see any changes in the job market, um, especially for compliance employees. Uh, it's still a very tight a job market. Um, and that's that makes sense, right? The, the, the role of a compliance manager has changed, where uh, a compliance manager used to purely focus on regulations. We now also see an increasing need of compliance managers needing to be able to understand tech. And, and that really just increases the complexity of this role. And we expect that um, finding uh, the right compliance people will remain a challenge for financial institutions. And therefore, there will continue to be a growing demand for um, um, yeah, implementing rec tech solutions um, across the globe. And also looking at, at macro trends, um, I just expect that um, there will be an increased market need for rec tech solutions. Uh, authorities are becoming more and more aggressive in enforcement, handing out more fines. Um, so as a result, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see that trend of, of, of outsourcing compliance uh, only increase and, and increasing investments. Uh, that's, that's a really great point, Friso. And I think from for now, we're going to move on to slightly warmer climates for a more scandalous story, let's say. Another one of the huge stories that's been, been brewing at the moment in the crypto space, which is the fall of FTX and the damage reputation to crypto as a whole that we've seen happen um, and what that means for 2023. The, for example, like the fall of FTX is a really good insight into why crypto needs stringent governance and uh, very strict compliance rules yeah. around it. How do you think this is going to evolve in 2023? So looking at, at the past few years, um, we've been hearing a lot of noise about uh, regulations around the, the crypto space in general. Um, but to date, we haven't seen strong enforcement happening. Um, with the whole uh, incident around FTX, uh, it's becoming apparent that, that this needs to change. Um, um, and, and really, what we can expect in 2023 is that um, crypto firms will actually have more regulatory certainty. So what we can expect in 2023 is, is, is uh, a movement where regulators will uh, increasingly focus on regulations around uh, crypto. Um, and that is actually a good thing, right? Because it will help crypto firms to get more certainty around what they can and cannot do. Um, talking to uh, many different crypto companies, um, one of the main challenges that a lot of them face is that there's just so much uncertainty about, about what they can and cannot do um, around how regulation is going to change. So um, um, what happened in, in 2022 with um, FTX is, is probably going to help us accelerate the regulations around, um, around crypto. Um, which, which ultimately will be a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that we're probably going to see in the EU uh, happening in either late 2023 or who knows if they'll push out to 2024 now um, is the markets in crypto assets regulation, um, aka MICA, that's been discussed quite heavily in a set of implementation. Probably more regulators are going to be coming into the crypto space over the, over the years and almost definitely over 2023. Do we think this is going to be a, another disaster for the industry, like the travel rule was was um, purported to be? Uh, how do we think this is going to affect the, the crypto market as a whole? My view is that any regulation in the crypto market is going to be quite widely welcomed. Um, one, it demystifies that space. 
crypto. I, I look at crypto as a, a person and really don't understand what it is I should buy or should not buy. I think that same is felt with institutional investors, but there is certainly a growing need to for investors to be able to invest in it in a efficient manner. So I think any regulation is certainly welcomed. I think it's also to be expected as a maturing of that space. Crypto isn't going to go anywhere. And certainly while its reputation may have taken a knock in late 2022, they are engaging actively with regulators to put their platforms on a more solid ground, to market their products in a more transparent and in a way that people are maybe able to understand what they do more. So I think crypto, we all know it's here to stay. I think regulation in the crypto space is welcome by all. And I think regulation in the crypto space offers a huge opportunity for regtechs to really come to the fore and say, we understand both regulation and your technology, and we can help you through this path of a more regulated environment. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really great point, right? It sounds like crypto is growing up, becoming a bit of a, an adult, being able to sit at the table with uh, the rest of the financial institutions. And what we're seeing here with more regulation is that, you know, it's it's catching out the criminals, right? It's catching out the people who are abusing the system, like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and other like crypto criminals. One of the one of the major driving points behind crypto was to be free, was to be free from, I, I mean, to some degrees regulation, but to be free from centralization, to be free from control. Do we think that um, perhaps there's there's a there's a cost to this that they're losing out as a result, and maybe potentially losing some of its key principles as a whole? I think. Yes, um, as a person who obviously favours a more regulated environment, I may be a little swayed in saying how wonderful regulation in the crypto space may be. However, if we had a, an expert here from a crypto company, I think they're counter argument would almost be that regulation will hinder them it will hinder them in bringing new offerings to market they will have to have a lot more standards that they would uphold when doing so i think ultimately we will have to see a balance being struck a balance that allows for regulation to move into the space and for a regulation to complement rather than hinder or slow down the offerings that they take into market i think it's going to be a very interesting year globally for that crypto regulation and as you said as we see that area of the industry grow up I do see we could sit down in 2024 and say, what did we look back on? We look back on an area that regulation potentially caused so much of a hindrance that crypto firms maybe said, I'm actually being hamstrung in doing any business, let alone new business. Yeah, if I, if I can just speak in defense of crypto as a whole for a second, it's, it's always worth remembering that the, uh, the travel rule really undermined crypto as a whole, right? It, it, was, it was put into position by people who... Who maybe didn't really respect or understand how crypto works and and that uh privacy was baked into a degree and was suddenly being asked to provide all this kyc information they just didn't have and so i think it's really important that any regulations that are set forwards are really um being made with the crypto industry in mind and speaking to the experts and understanding what is and what isn't possible and, and more importantly what is and what isn't uh, true to the nature of, of the platform of the technology itself but let's let's move on from crypto for a second just to some other just one other like major story that's really been dominating headlines um 
which is the rise of a particular influencer, uh, Andrew Tate, who was recently arrested in Romania for alleged human trafficking offences. This is someone who was in the public eye massively, right? He was he was all over the um, the Twitter sphere. He was all over social media. He was even uh, interviewed on TV a bunch of times. And now it seems that he has uh, the whole time been managing to exploit people in a very dark and cruel way. Uh, how do what do we think this means for how um, compliance managers should investigate their clients? And what does it mean for how brazen potential criminals can be? This isn't the first time we've seen this, of course. Uh, other influencers like Hush Puppy in Nigeria have been caught out exploiting their position to to launder money and to, to commit crimes. I think in a lot of ways, the, the Andrew Tate story um, firstly brings AML and KYC into the talking point of people who are having a drink in the pub or people who are water cooler chat in the office. It brings to the fore the fact that a robust um, KYC procedure is absolutely needed to stop one of the most grievous crimes you can think of. I mean, we speak of KYC a lot of times in quite abstract terminology, but if you bring it down to what he was charged with and what he is alleged to have committed, the act of human trafficking, it is one of the most nefarious crimes you can have. So certainly I think it has brought the conversation to the fore. It certainly brings in that people understand maybe just how profitable um, human trafficking is. FATF has commented that it is one of the most profitable um, proceed generating crimes in the world. And following on from that, the International Labour Organization estimated that the business of forced labour generates over $150 billion per year. I mean, that is huge. And if we bring it down to say, well, we've got these so-called finfluencers working in social media. They are, if you chose to follow Andrew Tate, you likely saw a lot of what he was doing. How can financial institutions spot the um, crimes that are potentially being committed under all of our noses when we pick up our phone and log into social media? Firstly, if you looked and said, what was the source of the wealth? Where was the wealth that was very, very widely documented on social media by Tate amassed? Where did that come from? Where did the flash cars, the various luxury goods, where did that money come from? If he were to open an account, where did anyone say is the expected activity of his going to be spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and euro on very, very luxury goods? Are we spotting the patterns on these people's accounts? Are we looking into saying, is there large cash deposits being made? Are those cash deposits being followed very swiftly by withdrawals? Is there a rise in card activity of uh, deposits into the account in nighttime hours that you might not spot? So a lot for financial institutions when you are doing the initial due diligence and the initial onboarding for an individual such as Tate, it's really delving into what is their source of wealth, what is their source of funds. And upon documentation of that, of course, it is monitoring that on an ongoing basis to say, are they living a lifestyle that matches what they told us they would do? And where does that sit? I think, and coming back maybe to earlier points, it has always been somewhat easier to track this for larger corporates and very difficult to track it for individuals. 
could we make an argument that you've got to have compliance teams now starting to look through social media? I think quite undoubtedly, um, you know, the pinch on staff, the move towards a gr- much, much greater deal of automation in that space means that is impossible. However, I think we are starting to see some initiatives emerge across a number of jurisdictions that are starting to look at these so-called finfluencers and see what it is they are doing and how they are doing it. So I'll just take some examples to see where regulators, where the social media companies themselves are beginning to see how can we tackle this and how can we maybe be more joined up in our efforts to say we have some very, very um, notable crimes happening and being published in the public domain on social media. One example that I would take, maybe not 100% related to KYC and AML, is in late December, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK took some strides to look at the financial advice landscape, looking to the publication by Finfluencers, who are perhaps making very, very big claims to quite vulnerable people on social media, invest your money here and you will get returns of X, Y, Z, or proposing scams. Here is a scam I want you to invest in, as I think maybe um, followed by Hush Puppy when he did a lot of the internet scams he did. So you can see that that is one pocket that it is looking at how can you police online promotion of either high risk or fraudulent investments. We also know as well that that same regulator, the FCA, removed more than 5,000 unsuitable financial proposals by FCA authorised firms this year. That's more than 10 times the number that they looked at in 2021. And that's only FCA authorised firms. Any cryptos, the activities that Andrew Tate maybe is alleged to have um, happened, such as human traffic, they're all outside of it. So while we see that regulators are trying to work to catch poor and misguided promotion by their own authorised firms, who and who answers the problem of the ones that fall outside of that. We do know that there is a number of online safety bills that are being proposed by a number of regulators globally. They will put a lot more onus on the social media platforms themselves to do more, to bring in more monitoring of what is happening on their platforms, to potentially flag um, pieces that you would see from Tate or from Hush Puppy influencers that are documenting their uh, proceeds of financial crime on social media. We could probably have another discussion around social media in and of itself and all that happened in 2022 and 23 and what we will expect to have there. But I do feel that there will be increasingly regulatory pressure on the social media platforms themselves to somewhat join forces with the financial institutions to spot patterns of financial crime happening. Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, really good to recognize as well that with with regards to Andrew Tate, for example, he potentially obfuscated his activity by um, also having his hustlers university, right? He was getting multiple payments from multiple different streams, some of which were legitimate, mixed in with allegedly illegitimate um, earnings, which makes it far more difficult for a compliance officer looking at their transactions going into this account and and thinking, oh, yeah. Obviously, this this is um, this is all legitimate because he's getting paid into his business from multiple different uh, people, 
rather than Joe Bloggers off the street, who's just getting paid a, a regular salary once a month via their their employer. Uh, he, he wasn't squirreling away these these payments, right? He was doing it very, very clearly in a very open way, uh, which ironically created more confusion for for compliance officers, I would imagine. And I think it maybe comes back to uh, a point that Friso made around the trade-off between um, individuals working within compliance, which we know is a very, very competitive market at the moment, and the use of technology to supplement what's happening. So while technology would be able to say, here is all the payments that are being made, you need to use individuals to investigate those payments. So when you have your compliance team, how do you assess what they are doing on a day-to-day basis? Is there work that is very, very specialized and actually takes a human with an experienced KYC AML background to spot those patterns and to question Maybe four out of 10 payments were coming from a a bad actor, but six out of 10 were coming from Joe Bloggs on the street who chose to support. So I think there's a trade-off there that says use technology in the right way and use reg techs um, in a supporting capacity, but ensure that when you have your compliance team doing monitoring or working through cases of suspicious activities on accounts, that they are really trained to spot a new type of pattern that maybe we weren't seeing in the years gone by. And and yeah, I, I fully agree, Eva. And I think that's also where the trend of um, reg tech providers um, being strategic partners is, is only increasing, right? It's, it's not about having just being a vendor, but it's really about being the strategic partner, uh, supporting the financial institution um, with their fight against financial crime. Um, um, so I expect that trend to also continue in 2023. I think it's going to take a lot for social media companies to willingly get involved in this fight. Um, so far, they've been very clear at that with, a, oh, we're just a platform. We don't own the content that we have hosted. Um, and they've worked very hard to prevent themselves from being liable for that content. Um, I think without significant legislation, it's, it's going to be a, a tough road to hoe. So yeah, these, these social media companies will need will need a lot of uh, convincing, I think, to get on board with with working with financial institutions. Speaking of, uh, data privacy is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for companies now. Anyway, um, no one wants to run afoul of GDPR fines. No one is feeling particularly confident about um, overstepping their bounds with consumer privacy. In fact, consumer privacy is becoming a bigger and bigger issue on the online space. So how do we think with these increasing calls for data privacy in the EU and the US, it will become more difficult for regulators to expect information to be shared across businesses? Great question, Danam. And I think this is something that we are all grappling with in the reg tech space when you look to say, we have very certain and definite uh, fin crime regimes that need to be followed. And how do you follow those in a rising tide of data privacy regulation and how do you bring the two together i think the only way that will bring those two together globally be it in the eu across the us and into pockets in apac is that there will need to be greater intergovernment activity happening there needs to be a push for regulators from all 
walks of law, if we were to call it that, from both the fin crime space and the data privacy space to work together to see how the information should be leveraged, to see where it can sit. Also, we do need to look to say there is a huge rationale, and I think our conversation a moment ago put paid to that, there is a huge rationale to try and slow down or prevent financial crime before it happens. There is very real world impacts of financial crime when it does happen. So it's a huge balance between how do you get the data privacy right and how do you continue to regulate for tighter AML and KYC regimes. So I think one area is the only kind of answer to it is that we do need to have better and increased intergovernment activity. We then need to see that coming down into the private sector to see how can it be leveraged and enabled. How can an FI say, I have a pocket of data that I would want to share. I want to share it with my peers in the space. I have a clear rationale for doing so. And maybe in Europe, I don't want to worry about GDPR issues. That needs to be, again, led by governments. FIs need to have the comfort and the confidence to say, I can share the information because I have a rationale to do so. And I can point to a public sector head that tells me that it's okay for me to do so. Do you think that's particularly likely, given that the um, European Court of Justice just scrapped the ultimate beneficial owner requirements for um, for the fifth AMLD? I think that has definitely been a step back. Personally, I would see that there is a huge need to have the clear ultimate beneficial owner registers. It makes the process of flagging poor actors or bad actors in the system a great deal easier for FIs. So while that's definitely been a step back, I would view that the outcome of this move by the courts of justice to scrap this area of the fifth AML directive might actually become an example as to when we are creating regulation, we need to work together and ensure that the data privacy regulation and the fin crime regulation are complementary rather than contradictory. Uh, so yeah, I think the the loss of the ultimate beneficial owners register was a was a real was a real step back as well. Um, it would have been really helpful for compliance managers to to really understand businesses at their core. But do we think that the that the that this increase for um, data privacy is going to make it easier for countries outside of the EU to do business with the trading bloc? I think it will reduce some of the barriers that had come in in that space. Um, I think a lot of financial institutions would agree with both of our statements to say the removal of the UBO registers as part of the fifth AMLD was a step back. So while it might open uh, trade for countries outside of the EU to do some increased business, I actually think if you look to the risk-based approach that financial institutions must take when covering their KYC, AML and FinCrime programs, that they will actually do it, still continue to do a lot of the UBO determination themselves as part of their own practices. So while it may not be something that is mandated by the fifth AMLD any longer, they will continue to do so as good practice. So while you might see that it opens some business, I think the barrier will actually remain, but maybe not be in a regulatory capacity. Is there anything else that you think has happened 
or is going to happen in 2023 that we haven't touched on that you really want to talk about? What I personally find very interesting is um, the release of uh, OpenAI's um, machine learning model uh, last November. Chat GPT is a chatbot that has been uh, making the headlines recently. So it's it's a it's a sophisticated machine learning model um, developed by OpenAI, um, and the model is really designed to an- answer questions on almost any topic that you can think of. And machine learning is is not something new. But looking at the skill that ChatGPT uh, did this is, is very impressive. So I played around a bit with the, with the model myself. And I was surprised by the ability um, to accurately answer very complex uh, questions uh, in a very wide range um, um, from creating software, uh, formulating business ideas, but even to writing a poem for Christmas, right? Um, and many experts say that this is really the tipping point uh, for AI and a proof that the technology can be useful to a very broad part of the population. And I think that adoption is, 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 is a very important one. I think we'll continue to see that trend in 2023. We'll see even more advanced uh, models becoming available. And to me, that, that adoption is also very important when it comes to compliance and to rec tech. There's so many use cases where uh, machine learning can play an important part in, in detecting financial crime, difficult to, to spot by a human analyst. That's really where these advanced models can work together and support um, and those investigators in their invest- in their in their investigations into financial crime. Yeah, I think ChatGPT is is fascinating. I think uh, Microsoft just invested ten billion or something absurdly high to buy half the business. So there's clearly a real a real institutional belief that there's going to be a future there. Exactly, but. But I mean, this. I think this is the first time that we could really say that AI, like AI, has existed in, in many forms, like you said, but really in the um, in the business space. Right? I think this is the first time we've seen AI become more democratized, more accessible to the public, which is great on the one hand. But are there not potential financial crime implications and like scam implications from this? Like, I can imagine that if AI can write a poem that can move someone, then it can probably write a, uh, a spear phishing email that's very effective. Absolutely. I think we all know that um, criminals are very, very much at the forefront of technology advances and are likely to be already executing um, AI-led uh, crimes through ChatGBT. So I think the balance to it here is it's another piece for regulators to now look to. It's another piece for technology companies to now see if they can spot. So while ChatGBT and bringing AI out to the general public obviously has huge benefits, I think we're all very cognizant of the potential criminality that could come from it. So thanks Aoife and Friso for a great conversation on AML 2023 prediction. That wraps up this episode of FinTalks by Finago. If you want to get to grips with any of the issues we've described today, you can reach us at info at or go to our website, www.finogo.com and book in a meeting with any of our AML experts to discuss further. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast, available anywhere you like to get your podcasts from.